Back in March, I had a plan to preach on the Ten Commandments today, and I had in my plans to complete them the last Sunday night in the month of May. However, some long-winded preacher on Sunday morning went too long, and so made a couple of those lessons go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and so for that reason, the Ten Commandments on the Ninth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment did not get in the schedule, and with our Sunday evening summer series, I have not been able to preach these lessons, and so my plan is this morning is to preach on the Ninth Commandment, and Lord willing, next Sunday to preach on the Tenth, because some of you have asked me if I'm ever going to finish the series, so I am going to finish it, Lord willing. I want to point out to you that when you think about the Ten Commandments, they do function as the foundation of moral law. They are a part of the American jurisprudence. They're a part of our nation and has been respected by those from generations gone before. However, today men are trying to rewrite history. They want to go back and suggest that the Ten Commandments and particularly the Bible as a whole has had no impact on our laws and on our nation. And I think in so doing they are cheating this generation by failing to tell them the truth. I also think that it's important for man to realize that without divine direction, there's nothing going to result but chaos. Our Supreme Court, as we have already observed on at least a couple of points with last week's lesson and now this one, is that if you try to take God out of the picture and you have God in none of the laws, then you certainly have nothing but chaos. In Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, Jeremiah says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not a man who walks to direct his own steps. You and I by ourselves are not capable of devising a law that is honorable, that is good and just. In fact, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or as he would put it later in chapter 30 and verse 12, there's a generation that is pure in their own eyes, yet are not washed from their filthiness. Folks have to realize that God's law is important. And we need God's law. Now we're going to talk about, uh, in just a few moments, about the bindingness of it. But what we want to do in this lesson is, as we have done in the previous ones, is first to look at the meaning of the commandment. What does it mean? And then finally, the message of it as it is applied in our lives. When Moses begins quoting for God, you shall not, he is talking to his covenant people, Israel. That covenant was made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 8, he says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I led them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking to, about those people to whom that was given. 
The Ten Commandments was never given to those of us who are Gentiles. The Ten Commandments was only given to Israel under that Mosaic dispensation. And someone would say, then why are you preaching on the Ten Commandments? And that's because all of them, with the exception of one, have a restatement in the New Testament. But when he says, you shall not, he's talking about a prohibition. There are things in the Bible that God says, you shall do, and those are obligations. And we sometimes talk about sins of omission. Those are failing to do the things that God has told us to do. But when God says, you shall not, and we do, these are sins of commission. That is, we violate God's direct law. You shall not bear false witness. Now, false indicates something is not true. It's a lie. So if someone is bearing something that is false, he's not telling the truth on the matter. And when you say a witness, that indicates this is the testimony that a person has given. Like, for instance, in a court case against your neighbor. You know, that's been a question going back for a long time. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, there was a Pharisee who had come to Jesus who had asked the question, who was his neighbor? And that was a very significant question for them because if you remember our Lord as he was discussing about being like our Heavenly Father, he said, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. In their minds, the neighbor was the person you liked. Your enemy was the person you did not like. When I go to Luke 10, 29, but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to put Jesus on record as saying, well, this is the kind of person that is our neighbor. But you drop down to verses 36 through 37, and I know that many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan very well. But Jesus asked the question, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. And the Lord, your neighbor is not a person you may not like or a person who is different from you because it was a Samaritan who showed kindness and mercy to his fellow man. Now, I think that's not very difficult to understand the meaning of it. But in my opinion, the message of this short command of God is tremendous. In fact, I don't believe that if I spent all the time that I wanted to spend, that I could exhaust what's in this lesson in two or three lessons. But we're going to try to make it in one. Obviously, he's talking about a legal matter. You shall not bear false witness. Now, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 19. We're not going to look at everything in this passage, but we're going to look at some of it. And this passage is discussing people who were witnesses against his neighbor. And here's the way Moses describes it. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. Now pause with me for just a moment. 
One person shall not arise as a witness. It was a part of this Old Testament system that you had to have more than one witness. That's just like the same case that it is today. You need more than one witness. That same principle also applies in the Lord's church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 17 and following, or 15 and following, as he's talking about at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so what he is saying here is, is that you can't have just one person giving testimony because he may not say it correctly. You need two or three. Verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both of the men of the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if a fault witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother. Now pause with me again for just a moment. You have a man who's come and he has given a testimony here. He's given a witness and it is false. Evidently, he has some ill will, some evil desire against his neighbor. Well, how are you going to deal with people like that? Begin with verse 19. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I think you can understand. If a person, because of an ill will, ill desire, wanted to inflict harm upon another person and they gave a false testimony, they were to reap what they had sown. You remember Haman in the book of Esther? How he had built the gallows for Mordecai, and yet he himself was hanged upon his own gallows. That was the Old Testament principle that a person was to suffer the consequences of what they had lied about to another. But do you know when you go to the New Testament, you see this in practice? In fact, you see it in practice by the religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 59, now the chief priest, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. They were looking for it. They sought for it. Even though false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest rose and answered and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said, I put you under an oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power coming in the clouds of the heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, 
He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. You see, they wanted false witnesses. They couldn't get any. And so the high priest tried to put Jesus in a position where he could challenge him for his life. But it wasn't just Jesus. If you go with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 11 through 15, you can see Stephen also suffering the same sort of mistreatment. Stephen was one of the seven, one of those chosen to serve tables. Stephen was a man full of the Spirit of God and was able to speak, and they were not able to resist the words which he was speaking. And by the time you get to verse 11, Luke says, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Pause again for just a moment. They secretly induced men to say. They're out just like they were with regards to Jesus seeking false witnesses. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. You see exactly what's going on. False witnesses. That's what... This commandment in the law of Moses was to regulate. You don't have false witnesses. Now let me talk to you just a moment about how it is expressed in our modern society. If you go before a court of law, you're going to be asked the question, do you swear or solemnly affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now some of us might think, well, why not just say, are you going to tell the truth? But I'd suggest to you all three aspects of that are very important. For just a moment, let's explore them biblically. The truth, as opposed to a lie. When I go to 1 John 2 and verse 21, John was trying to reassure those Christians that they had learned the truth, they knew the truth, and that anything else that someone might persuade them of contrary to that would be a lie. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. When someone comes to you, they bring a different doctrine, a different teaching. Second John 9 he says, don't receive him into your house nor give him greeting. Proverbs 14, verse 5 says, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. So when you are asked, do you swear or do you solemnly affirm that you will tell the truth? The truth. You're saying you're not going to tell a lie. And someone would say, well, that ought to be enough. But the whole truth means that you're not withholding some sort of relevant information that may distort the truth. Sometimes people will say, 
well, as long as I just tell just enough of the truth that they'll believe it, sometimes people are willing to tell a half-truth or a partial truth. But you know, the Bible addresses that as well. In Genesis chapter 12 with Pharaoh, and then in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech, Abraham lied. He bore false witness. If you'll go with me to chapter 20, let's look at verse 2, verse 5, and then verses 10 through 12. I think you can see the big picture here. When you get to chapter 20 and verse 2, Abraham has arrived and he said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, in between verses 2 and 5, God comes to Abimelech and said, you better not touch that woman. And Abimelech is going to protest his innocence by saying, did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech says, I went on the basis of their statements alone. I accepted what they said in innocence. When Abimelech then confronts Abraham in verse 10, here's what he says to him. What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed... She is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. You see, Abraham withheld relevant information by telling only part of the truth. So when someone says, will you tell the truth, the whole truth, they're suggesting that you've got to tell everything that is relevant so a person doesn't get a distorted view. Now, Paul made it clear when he met with the elders from Ephesus that that's the way he preached. That's the way he taught. He said to them in verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I didn't withhold anything that you needed to understand or needed to know. In fact, verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. You see, it would be very easy for a preacher to get up and just tell the things that make people feel good and never deal with the things which the people there are involved in that might be sinful and wrong. You see, if you don't preach on everything that's in the Bible, then you may miss something that people need to hear. I know sometimes people, when they hear a sermon, why did he preach on that subject? Why not preach on something else? People like the pleasing, the feel-good sermons. That's the reason why Joel Olstein can fill these great big auditoriums, coliseums, because he never tells anybody anything about sin. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. 
We're not the kind of people who try to bait and switch. We're not the kind of people who try to get someone to listen to part of the message and then spring the rest of it on them later. In fact, Jesus taught, teach people to count the cost. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is not adding something to it that is our own interpretation or our own opinions to it that may make it change. For instance, listen to Proverbs 30 and verse 6. Solomon said, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You don't take what God has said and then you add your words to it because if you do, you become a liar. And someone says, well, how do you become a liar? Because you have presented what you have said on the same level as and as if it is from God. In Galatians 1, beginning with verse 6, going through verse 9, Notice the way Paul presents how the Judaizing teachers had taken God's word, added their part to it, and what it ended up doing. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What they have done is they've taken God's word and they've added something else to it. What they've added is you've got to actually keep the Old Testament law as well. And sometimes people add to it their own suspicions. You know, I think back about Deuteronomy 19 where he talks about a man and he talks about accusing somebody else of a sin. Have you ever seen someone who has done something and they came forward and They've confessed their faults and someone says, oh yeah, but do you know what else they did? They add something to it. They start impugning their motives. First Timothy 6 and verse 4, he said, he's proud and knowing nothing but his obsessed disputes, arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. You see, our suspicions become a part of it as well. But I want you to consider how some people became false witnesses for God. When someone claims that God has spoken to them when he did not. That's bearing false witness against God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, very plainly you can see it. In Jeremiah 23 verse 21, I have not sent these prophets Yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Or Ezekiel 13, 7. Have you not seen a futile vision and have not spoken a false divination? You say the Lord says, but I have not spoken. Do you mean there are people who would say, God spoke to me and God didn't really speak to them? Yes. There are people today who get on the television and radio and now internet And they will present themselves as people to whom God has revealed a message. When God said nothing, 
those people are bearing false witness. When a person distorts the word of God, that is, they twist it to make it fit themselves. For instance, if a man preaches only the doctrine of faith only, or he teaches grace only, he's leaving out an important part of God's word and he ends up with a distorted message. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter is talking about some of Paul's writings. He says, as also in his epistles, all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand which the untaught and unstable twist to their own destructions, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. They twist them to make them say what they want them to say. Just like David said about other people and about him in Psalm 56, 5, all day they twist my words, all their thoughts against me are evil. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. You add to the words of this prophecy, God's going to add the plagues. You take away, God's going to take away his part out of the book of life and from the holy city and the blessings that are written in it. But now let's make it apply even a little more plainly. You know, someone say, I don't believe in bearing false witness I would never go to court and lie under oath. But when you say something false about someone else, you slander them, you gossip about them, or you leave an innuendo that they may have done something else that has not yet been discovered, then are you not also bearing false witness? You know, in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11, Paul was talking about people who, anticipating the Lord's second coming, had quit work. He said, For we hear there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. That is, you're just going over here and you're talking over here and you become a busybody. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 13, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not. Yes, there's things we ought not talk about. We ought not speculate upon. God hates this. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, There's six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. You get to verse 19. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. What is a person who sows discord? He's a person who's saying things about this person and that person and creates that kind of difficulty. And false swearing. You know, there's the legal way in which we would go to a court of law and a person would say I promise I solemnly affirm I swear on this Bible that this is the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth 
But what about when we speak with our fellow man and our neighbor and we say something to the effect, well, the Lord knows I'm telling the truth. And Leviticus 6 and verse 3 says, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, Here's a man who, for instance, maybe was coming along and he found a lost sheep. And he said, well, look what I found. I found a lost sheep. I'm going to carry it put it in my flock. And his neighbor comes along and says, you know, I think that's my sheep. Oh, no, 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 no. I've had that sheep a long time. That's my sheep. Well, it sure looks like my sheep. Sure looks like the one I had. Oh, no, 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 that's not yours. He is bearing false witness. He's lying to his neighbor. Chapter 19, verse 12. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You don't call God's name to back up your lies. Truth is important. In fact, I would like for you to imagine a justice system where no one's testimony was dependable. Can you imagine being called to serve as a juror before a legal case? And one right after the other, the person who takes a stand, who gives a testimony, you can't depend upon a word they say. And you say, well, that's where we are right now. You see, once God is no longer in the picture, once man no longer sees himself as standing and answering not to just a physical judge who may or may not be able to detect if the person is lying or telling the truth, the God of heaven, the judge of all men, knows our honesty. In John 8 and verse 32, Jesus said, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 17, 17, your word, God's word, is true. And you and I need to obey that truth. Only in one last passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now here's the truth. You are a sinner. John reveals that our Lord's word is truth. Well, if his word is truth, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. The second truth is that God doesn't want you to be lost. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, he would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The truth is, you and I have to act upon God's commands. That means that you and I have to believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, John 8 and verse 24. That means that you and I have to repent 
of our sins. Luke 13, verses 3 and verse 5. That means that we have to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we must acknowledge Him before men. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. And Acts 8, verse 37. And then we have to be baptized for the remission of our sins. Acts 2 and verse 38 and Acts 22 verse 16 and many other passages. The truth is that you and I have to live faithfully the rest of our lives. Should we not, we'll be lost. But we do have an offer from God that as His children, if we recognize our errors and we come and ask He will forgive us. We're going to sing the invitation song, and if you need to respond, would you come as we stand and sing?